This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. I had the great good fortune to be introduced to Morty Mittenthal by good friend and podcast supporter, Dr. Bill Mentes. If you'll forgive me a societal observation, I think young people these days have been done a tremendous disservice by their elders. Those of us who grew up in the 1960s and 70s are more than familiar with some unusual paths trod and diversions enjoyed as we eventually, hopefully, found our way in life. These days, the lives of many young people seem to be structured almost from birth, such that there is little opportunity for them to learn from not just the mistakes one makes, as mistakes are simply not allowed, but a little opportunity for them to learn from aimlessly grazing at the buffet of life. Instead, it seems as if fixed menus are offered from which limited choices can be made by their intended audience. From four-year-olds playing organized sports, to travel teams, to AP courses, to name schools only, to unpaid internships, their lives seem to proceed along rigid, narrow paths that, if nothing else, leave no room for the types of stories you are about to hear from Morty Mittenthal. To paraphrase an old TV show introduction, there are millions and millions of stories from that long-ago era, and Morty has well over a thousand of them. Selling textbooks for wagering money, a chronically itinerant existence working for major trainers, talking himself into a job that didn't exist. These types of things just don't happen anymore. And with Morty, as you will soon learn, the adventures and the stories never stop. Enjoy this part one of two as Morty and I ramble through some great stories of days long gone by. I conducted this interview with Morty the same day I had some dental surgery, which my tongue-tied manner will reveal almost immediately. You grew up, you were Morty, uh, what, I think you told me two black, two, two blocks. <laughs> Let me try that again. You grew <laughs> that's up two the, blocks that's from... That's the dentistry <laughs> kicking in there, Bill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Two blocks from Pimlico, yeah. right? Yeah, so two blocks from Pimlico, and I went to my first Preakness when I was 13. My brother at that time wasn't into horse racing, but he had a couple friends that were, and they just said, hey, you know, come on, you want to come along? So, and they were, my brother's like six years older than me, so they were like 19, 20. And they said, hey, you want to come along? So I, I went, it was 1960, and it was uh, the year Ballyake won the Preakness. Venetian Way had won the Derby, and Ballyake won the Preakness. And, you know, in those days, um, you could only bet win, place, and show. They had a daily double in the first two races, but as far as the Preakness, that was it. Win, place, and show. There was no... <laughs> no other events, which is pretty funny to think back. But anyway, but so they were like laughing and, you know, okay, kid, who do you like? You know, I got the program and I had no clue, but I guess maybe I thought the name Ballyache was funny, you know, like Bellyache or something. And then, and then this horse named Victoria Park came from Canada and I said, you know what, I just, I, I don't, you know, my opinion is, I think Bal, I don't like Venetian Way, the Derby winner today, for whatever reason, so I think you should bet Ballyake to win in Victoria Park for second. 
And sure enough, that's exactly as they came in. <laughs> and Ballyake, oh I forget gosh. what he paid. We could look it up. Victoria Park was a nice shot. He was like, you know, like 12 to 1 or 15 to 1. He ran second. Anyway, so these guys thought, oh, my God, this is, we have a savant on our hands, you know. So anyway, so that was my <laughs> first introduction. It was. You just didn't like, you just didn't like the favorite, like all I of guess them. so, exactly. Yeah. Maybe I just didn't yeah. like the favorite, you know. And I love yeah. the name Venetian Way. It's a cool name. But anyway, so. So, and, that, and, you know, at that time, I don't know if you remember the old clubhouse, but, you know, oh, my God, the saddest, one of the saddest things in my life is that old clubhouse burning down. It was so beautiful. You know, they have it on the cupola now where they paint the colors of the winter. That's a replica of, of the uh, of the old clubhouse, but it was this old, beautiful, wooden, clapboard, yellow uh, clubhouse with a red roof and the little cut couple on top and uh, I just remember going in there and going up this creaky stairs and they had the the uh, uh, the paintings of all the famous jockeys Eddie O'Carroll and all those at the time mm-hmm. and it was the trophies and that's everything it was just and the dining room and everybody of course was dressed to the nines you know in those days everybody dressed up you know which was we used to dress up to go on planes remember those wonderful days Bill when you actually wear a jacket and tie <laughs> so and then just six <laughs> years of your pajamas. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Six years later, it burned down. Ah, just devastating. The passion was instilled early on. The adventures and the career came later. So that was kind of like an inspiration. And so I just kind of, I took that to heart. And I would, every year the Derby would roll around, I would look at the names. And I don't know how the hell I came up with it. But I, I had an amazing record and this guy an older guy named ben, Benson Offit, who was a wonderful guy. He, he passed away last year. Um, he would go place the bets, and uh, we really did, did really well. And, you know, I, I can look back at some of the winners that were, like, you know, long shots that were, you know, really fantastic. Of course, my ears perked up when Morty mentioned Peter Fuller. Legendary in New England, aside from the mention here, Peter Fuller was a successful automobile dealer, once boxed Muhammad Ali in a charity event, and bred fame the Triple Tiara winner Mom's Command who just happened to be written by his daughter, Abby Fuller. But I got to, I got to meet um, uh, the uh, dancer's image, Peter Fuller. That was 1968. Oh, from when uh, he was, from uh, he was the heart of New England here. Yes, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I got to know, got to, I don't know how, I don't remember this now, but I got to meet him, and I love dancer's image because he was the son of native dancer, you know, who only lost one race. It was really, really sad. But anyway, and of course, native dancer lived in Maryland at Sagamore Farm and one of the great thrills was driving. We'd do it oh, we'd go out maybe once a month to just drive out that beautiful Green Spring Valley and go to Sagamore Farms, which was Vanderbilt's farm and he owned it at that time in the early days. And just and to visit with Native Dancer. You could literally go right up oh, wow. to the paddock wow. fence and he'd come over to you and oh my God. So that was all kind of like the mystical, if you will, part of of my early childhood, you know, with, with the races. And so Morty's journey began. Along the way, he met one or two then-famous people, one of whom is remembered primarily today for who we played alongside. Uh, I ended up uh, going to New York to school to Wagner College on Staten Island, and I would take the ferry over, and I, I arranged my classes um, uh, to have my classes just either in the evening or Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, and I and this is in I probably shouldn't say this. Uh, my brother will get upset when he listens to it. But I would I would sign up for like twenty credits and buy all the books, and then I would drop eight credits, sell the books back for uh, um, for ninety cents on a dollar, 
and then that's how I had my horse racing stake, and so that, <laughs> which is I know a terrible that's, thing. Well, that's high finance right there. But I think it is, but I mean it's pretty, good. pretty embarrassing. <laughs> so I would take that money and I would go over, and so one day I'm over at Aqueduct and I go into the man of war room near the dining room, and to to hang out because I, I love I just you know just love those kind of I mean the the Damon Runyon you know I used to love reading you know Ring Lardner and Damon Runyon you know about these characters and. So I was in the I was in the bathroom uh, one day at the urinal, and um, two couples couple urinals down was this guy in a big rabbit coat or some for it wasn't a mink but it was a big rabbit I think big long coat coat and I looked at him and I said you're Tom Yule right and he said yeah yeah I'm yeah and because he did a movie called The Seven Year Itch which was Marilyn Monroe which I had yeah. seen was he you know, was he bus stop yeah. also was he uh, was that him I think also? he was in yeah. bus stop yeah, yeah. good call yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And then later yeah. on, he was Beretta's father, to Robert Blake, who killed. Oh my gosh! Blake or wow. Whatever, yeah, yeah. Talk about a career. But anyway, yeah. so <laughs> I don't know why, but maybe he just appreciated the fact that this young guy would know who he was. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 19, 19 years old, and he said, "Hey, you know, what are you doing for lunch?" I said, "Oh, I'm, I don't know. I'm just hanging out." He said, "Well, come join us." And, um, did, and what he, did did yeah. did Tom Ewell ever tell you what it was like to work with Marilyn Monroe? You know, I I don't remember that we talked about that. I mean, I'm sure we mm-hmm. must have, but I, I unfortunately don't have a memory of that. My, okay. um, some things in my memory are not as not as great as others, and I'm sure that has a lot to do with the drugs that came later. But um, that's another story. But or just um, the racing form lines that were in there that uh, you know the, yeah. you got to prioritize <laughs> things, right? <You> exactly. <laughs> a son of the bluegrass. Tom Ewell was well-positioned to take his young protege under his wing and teach him a thing or two about the art of reading the racing form. But anyway, he did. He invited me over, and he had a couple friends. I don't remember who, who they were. I don't think they were actors necessarily. But, and he kind of took me under his wing, and he taught me how to read the Morning Telegraph for the racing form, whichever one he had. And, of course, that was the downfall of my life. <laughs> uh, be, I mean, Thanks, it was Tom. such a one. Yeah, such a wonderful experience, and he was yeah. such a great guy. And he, and he, you know, every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I'd come and and he'd buy me lunch, and and we'd bet together. And some days, you know, we'd have good days. But once I learned to read that form, and I mean, I God, it was it was so exciting to learn how to really do this, which was neat, and it carried me through the rest of my life. But I lost the magic. You mentioned something before you go on. Just quickly, uh, you know. Back then, yeah. people, you know, they look at the form today, and it's, of course, it's chock full of information. You can get more online. You talked about reading the form. Back then, you really had to be, have a, a good grounding in how to read that thing, right? Because it was not easy to tease information out of there. In fact, some of the information wasn't even in there, right? Workouts and, 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 and that type of thing, correct? Yeah, I don't. I don't remember that the, whether the workouts were in there. I, they may have been. They may not have been. But on um, one thing, there was no race. There were no figures. There was no buyer figures. There was nothing like that. And so you had to kind of extrapolate the times. And um, now they did have the thing that you used, of course, in, in the racing form. I don't remember in the Morning Telegraph, but in the race form, they had, of course, the speed figure and the variant. So you could you could add the speed, and I still do that to this day because I like to add the speed figure to the variant and the variant always is what the track is playing that day so mm-hmm. a, t- a normal variant as you know would be 15 so then anything less than 15 means the track is faster anything higher means it's slower so if you see like a obviously a 24 variant now a lot of it has to do 
with the condition of the track, but also the horses that race that day. If it's a if it's a Wednesday and it's cheap racing, then the variance is going to be higher anyway because the times are clear, you know going to be slower. But um, it kind of I remember one year at the in a few several years ago the um, uh, the uh, bluegrass stakes a horse called Bandini won. Yes, you remember that sure, was a yeah, Fletcher yeah, horse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he got an and he got an eighty three speed figure on a like a 12 variant or maybe a 10 variant something like that and so when you add it up it was like 93 right and I'm, and it's and i said to my buddy phil who's a trainer phil thomas this doesn't this seems weird because he got a buyer it got a pretty decent buyer number right and we both questioned that and sure enough he, he didn't do very well in the derby but yeah in those days you kind of had to look at the time see how and then if you kept charts which i did mm -hmm. you could go back and then look at the charts of that day so yeah it was a lot more work the other thing you did which was which was great in those days you'd keep a trainer book and you'd see how a trainer liked to when the, when you could kind of tell are they prepping a horse or trying and today you don't really need to do that because it's given to you yeah you can see what the trainer does with 60 days rest or, you know, all those numbers that they give you now and, you know, what his ROI is on certain things compared to other things and is he a good turf trainer, you know, whatever. And, and then sometimes it can cost you because you'll throw a horse out. One time right. I hit a $90. Doesn't yeah, yeah, it doesn't fit. A Leroy Jolly horse who trained London Company, who was, was great great turf horse but he was for whatever reason at this he was over 33 and on the turf so he had like a zero percent on the turf he was running a horse out of cozine who i just loved cozines and and especially on soft turf and uh horse won and paid 90 bucks and i had him just just based because i knew this something's weird here about why you know why is he over you know he's just either running them over their heads or whatever the reason was or they but this particular horse anyway so that's just another another well, story you know <laughs> but, no but it's you know it's back to that. something you mentioned earlier and and that um you know and and i i can't i struggle with this myself and i've noticed it a lot more lately too it's the it's the once you learn how to read the form and really you know dig into the details and everything it's almost like sometimes you have too much information and, and you don't you know, um, you don't some sometimes just look at something and make a make a snap decision based on you know what is sound logic. You're you're kind of combing through data, combing through data, and you come up with a reason why I can't use this horse. But but you know, the fact that the horse was out of cozine was something that you know normally you would have said, oh geez, I love that on, on soft turf. Here we go. Um, but you know, you now you have too much information. You know about O for thirty three, and you said yeah, I'm going to toss it and. And, and you might get away from it. The men were different. The horses were different. Everything was different back then. And I remember we both loved a horse that would run. You know, in those days, horses would run in those handicap races every week, right? I mean, every Saturday, they, and then they put weight on. And in the last race, every Saturday at uh, Aqueduct or Belmont, in that, the last race, handicap race, was a horse named Me Renombre. Me Renombre. You can look him up. And he, you know, just a cheap. You know, when I say cheap, you know, handicap five thousand or whatever it was in those days, handicap. And but he was eligible to run and can't be claimed. And he would run, and he was always come from behind. You know, uh, kind of like a Silky Sullivan type. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. you know, not that far back. I'd sure. So unbelievable. But and it was just, it was neat to kind of have a horse that you loved. You know what I mean? And and cheap. And so he and I, and we would always bet on Mirandombre and. 
Sometimes he'd win. He'd always seem to hit the board. And, you know, again, in those days, you're betting across the board. Time marched on and Morty moved on back to his native Maryland, where he connected with a legendary Maryland-based trainer, dabbled in, among other pursuits, dinner theater, eventually connecting with a horse named Day After, who could also have been named El Diablo. I left school in 68, 69, because mm-hmm. I dropped out after three years. And so then I, I went to work... Um, in dinner theater, I, was, I had been an actor in college, so okay. then I, I was hired by a dinner, local dinner theater to come and be part of their troupe. So you, you know, you waited tables, and then you got it, you were in the show, and we literally lived at the dinner theater. It was kind of like a commune. It was really an amazing experience. I'm not going to go into all that, but it was, it was, and that's when I actually first started to smoke pot and drop acid and, you know, test those test those waters so um but in any event and i so we'd basically we'd spend our day going to the track during the day and then come back and wait tables and do the show at night i mean that was my life for you know three years or so and then um and then i was i what, the reason why i went called dickie dutcher was i, I was promised the, the lead in a play um that i had done uh, at in a at dinner at not at dinner theater at summer stock because I'd done some summer stock too during the summer, and I'd done it was um, it was the pajama game, and I was pro- promised the lead, and then at the last minute they they took it away from me and brought in some guy from New York that he owed a favor to that was down on his luck and he wanted and which was fine I I mean I wasn't happy about that but I was appreciative of the fact that he wanted to help this guy out who was down on his luck and blah 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 but kind of still pissed me off so. I decided at that, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. That night I called Dickie Dutrow and said, look, you know, I've, I've always wanted to learn about horses. I'm a better, but I don't know anything about them. never been around them, don't know a thing. Um, would, you, would you give me a job? And, all right, come out, be, be there at Pimlico, 5.30 tomorrow morning. I'll tell them on the gate that you're expected. And, but, you know, so he was testing me if I'd get there at 5.30 or not. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. I said, I'll be there, and I, I sure I was, but of course I showed up and did have jeans and a flannel shirt, but I had a huge afro, you know, and um, <laughs> so of course Dutro, he was a real straight, you know, arrow, I mean, but but he was a good guy, I mean, he, and he, he you know, and he's so, but he, so Richard Stort was his assistant, and uh, he told Richard, I give him a, let's see how, if he can walk a horse, so of course Richard, he didn't like my afro either, <laughs> so but he and I, got to be dear friends and he trained my brother's horses after that but anyway that's another part of the story but he gave me a horse called day after to walk and day after was the toughest horse in the barn to walk and and i could have been killed i mean really it was a stupid thing for him to do but i'm sure they dutcher said look let's just get rid of this guy you know let's let's, let's let him out. walk yeah. you know find out unless he'll 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 be scared and he'll get the hell out of so he ran off with me right away he showed me okay here's the shank here's how you hold it and you know, if he if he starts to give you a hard time, just just pull on the shank, just you know, drink on the sh- yank on the shank, it'll, it'll settle down. Well, of course, that was the worst thing you could do for the day after. He didn't like having the shank yanked on him, and he goes, he starts off down the shed row. He's running down the shed row, and as he's running, I'm trying to keep up because I didn't want to lose this horse, no. I didn't lose this job. So I'm all the way at the very end of the shank, 
and the black grooms are coming out of their stalls because they hear this horse galloping oh, by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the grooms, drop the shank, man, drop the shank. <laughs> They're telling me, drop the shank. <laughs> Meanwhile, I am so close to this horse's back hooves, right? I mean, how I wasn't kicked somewhere, I have no idea. And it really, they... I mean, these days, had I been kicked, I'd have a lawsuit. I'd be a rich millionaire. <laughs> right? I'd sue all the owners of the track. You know, but I didn't want to. And they're all, you drop the damn shank, drop the shank. And then finally, one of the one of the guys just came out and tackled me. <laughs> just pulled me, pulled me, and let the horse. And then, of course, they the horse came around the corner, and they were there, you know, waiting for him, and they stopped him. And, but I, but I, I didn't want to drop the shanks, so they said, "Okay, well, at least he's got the guts to walk." So then oh, they hold on. really, yeah. yeah, they taught me how to do it properly, and and I walked horses for a couple years, and then I became a groom, and which was great. Or maybe I walked horse for a year. I don't, I don't remember. But then you know, it was neat. I'd walk them over to the races, and you know, it was a, it was an exciting exciting time. And and working for Dutro, he he was a tough cookie. And right across the alley from us was Frank Whiteley, who was one of the great trainers of all time, as you know, Damascus and and. Uh, yeah, and of course Frank Whiteley. Oh my God, you talk about—he would sit there, just hosing his horses down every day. He'd have that cigarette dangling out of his mouth, and and he would hose those horses. And I'd go over and talk to him, and and of course I had this, you know, afro. And and but people, you know, the one guy that never liked me, the other, everybody else got to like me. Realized I was, you know, just that was my hair, and leave me alone with the hair. But and I think I may have gotten a haircut at some point. But in any event, Jack Moberly. Um, uh, he he didn't like me at all. He was in the barn with us, Jack, on the other side, and he re he was a real, real Southern Maryland or whatever, you know. Anyway, but years later, when I got the job at Pimlico, uh, you know, as director, by the way, he and I got to be great friends, and <laughs> so it's really funny. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, and he kind of looked past all that, you know. But anyway, Morty bounced around the then Mid Atlantic circuit, which included now long closed outlets like Liberty Bell and Bowie. In an almost zelig-like existence, as you will hear, Morty ended up working with, among others, Harvey Vernier, a renowned trainer whose blue-collar work ethic he also instilled in his horses. But then I went from there to work for Harvey Vernier, who was a Kentucky trainer, and he sent me with his uh, guy uh, Smokey up to up to Saratoga with four horses, and we were on the back. We were at the Oklahoma training track. We had a stable there, so that was really exciting to be at Saratoga with four horses that I was in charge of with Smokey. Um, I was really work. Smokey was in charge. I was second in command, but I, you know, um, and then Harvey would come up and run the horses when we'd run them, and and then I. Uh, but even before that, actually, before I worked for Harvey, I worked for Leroy Jolly and Moody Jolly down in down in uh, Florida, Hialeah, and mm -hmm. that's when Reggie Cornell had the had the Calumet farm. And boy, they they would come down that beautiful back uh, path, that beautiful path with the palm trees, mm -hmm. with all in their red and blue, and Reggie Cornell leading the way with these. God, he would bring out you know like ten horses at a time to to gallop. All, all and, great looking, right? You know, oh, my God, it was yeah. so amazing. And uh, But anyway, in our barn, so Leroy had one half, and the other half was Lucian Lawn, and he had River Ridge there and Secretariat. So we went we went from from uh, Florida to Kentucky, and I saw River Ridge win the Derby. And, and of course, I got to know Secretariat, and, 
and uh, that was pr- pretty even when, that was pretty exciting. So anyway, so that was that was really special. Hialeah and Gulfstream and the original Gulfstream, but Hialeah was the most beautiful track I've ever been to. It's still my far and away my favorite, even even compared to Keeneland and, and Saratoga. Because you, would you were you ever at the original Hialeah and the old no? Days you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I've never heard one person who talked about Hialeah that didn't mention it was their favorite track, most beautiful track of all time, the Flamingos and the Infield. Isn't that yeah, yep. There was something about Hialeah. They had a bird sanctuary there, which is still there, by the way. You can go go to the bird sanctuary. And so, and then it was just grass everywhere. You would just lay out on the grass, and then you'd walk through these beautiful Spanish columns to get to the track. I mean, everything about it, it was all open. It was, you know, no air conditioning. It was all just every windows and open and, and just gorgeous, gorgeous. I just can't get over how. And then the royal palm trees, you would drive in to royal. It was kind of like Magnolia Lane at the Masters. It was these royal palm trees. And then the back back path where the horses would come. And anyway, it was just magical. I, that's all I just magical. Reggie Cornell, most remembered for training Silky Sullivan, should also be remembered as the uncle who took his 16-year-old nephew out of an orphanage after the death of his mother, put him to work in a stable at New Hampshire's Rockingham Park, teaching the ropes to now Hall of Fame trainer Ron McAnally. In the itinerant life of a stable hand, Morty ended up at Keeneland one spring. Old Keeneland, fondly remembered. Yeah, and in those days, there was no fence, so it was all on the honor system. If There was gates that you could pay $2 to get in, but there were no no fences, so people could just walk in for free, but most people would pay. And, and of course, in those days, they had no announcer, as you right, recall. Right, right, right. As I mentioned at the top of this podcast, those were very different times in the 1960s and 1970s. Morty shared a couple of humorous big score stories, one of which will shed some light on the, shall we say, chemical nature of those times. So I left, I leave Florida with my friend Kevin Sweeney He's from Baltimore, and he and I had both worked for Lou Jolly. And we came to Keeneland, and um, Kevin got a job walking hearts for Harvey, and I rubbed horses. And um, so we came, and we had... Um, I don't remember how Kevin did. I think he was doing okay. But I had had, like, I left Florida, and I had done pretty well betting. And I, I, I had, like, I think I think it was, like, $1,200 or $2,000. It was something like that. It might have been 1200 Anyway, but I was you know, doing pretty well with it. Coming there, and I had a job, and I had 1200 bucks in my pocket to bet. Feels so good, yeah. on, the, you know, on the first day we're there, I think I told you the story. On, on the first day we're there... Um, there was one of my favorite horses from Florida named Barely Even running in a, in a stakes, six furlong stakes race. It was opening day at Keeneland, and, um, uh, and Johnny Watts was riding her, and she, she, uh, and she was even money, maybe four to five. And I was, I bet different. I, I was, you know, I was never a big better necessarily, but, you know, again, in those days, there weren't a lot of options. I think they they had exactors at that point, but I don't, I'm not sure if they even had trifectas. They may have had one or two on the card. I can't remember, but it was still basically win, win betting, win and play. So I just thought she was just a lock, you know, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to take this 1200 and turn it into 24 and really be able to enjoy this meet, and this just is just a gift from the gods, you know, I mean, 
six-horse field, seven-horse field, she can't lose, put it all in the nerves, all the money in my pocket, didn't even save a dollar, I mean, like an idiot, right, and uh, put it all in her nerves. Well, here comes the, the gates open, there's no announcer, but I see this horse in red silks on the outside, it was F.W. Hooper silks, <laughs> never forget, just explode out of the gate <laughs> from, the, from the outside post, and and come across on the backside and is leading by three, leading by four, and turns into the stretch and barely even is like in the middle of the pack. And I'm going, what the hell is going on here? What is happening and, here? Yeah, 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 and turns for home, and uh, and they turn for home, and Susan Girl still on top, finally barely even gets up for second. Who cares? I had it all to win. Doesn't help me. She wins. You know, she won easy by two and a half, three. Susan's girl, one of the great sprinters of all time, and, yeah, owned by owned by Fred, Fred W. Hooper, who is a great honor, great guy. Anyway, I'm just devastated. I'm shaking. I'm literally shaking that I could be I so imagine. stupid to do this. And um, and then all of a sudden the lights start flashing. Well, there's no announcer. The lights start. All the lights are flashing. One, two, three, four. They're all flashing. And I'm going, what the hell are all these lights flashing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turns out she comes out of the gate, and when you did see it on the replay, she was so fast out of the gate that she just came right across the field and basically didn't wipe them out, but they couldn't move. They had to basically stop because she just came out, and she she basically impeded every horse in the race. So she was, and it took a little while, and I'm waiting and waiting, and then they just, all of a sudden, again, no announcer. You just see her number, number six or number seven, I can't remember, so short field, and all of a sudden she just comes all the way out, and thank God, barely oh. even did in a second. Because, <laughs> oh I mean, yeah, because, I mean, incredible. she was a and she moved up. So we're Kevin and I. That we uh, a friend of ours, Billy Gordon from Baltimore. He sends us up some white powder, and we didn't quite know what it was. Anyway, it was called MDA. I don't know if you ever heard of it or not, but it's a it's a very strong hallucinous drug. And and he thought we knew. You know, he thought we knew what it was. I can't believe you put the stuff in the mail <laughs> and mailed it to us at the track. I mean, think about that. I mean, just we crazy it. stuff you do when you're young. Anyway, um, so we get this stuff. It's in a little, little envelope, and it's a powder. Well, it turns out it was enough to last us the entire meet. I mean, you're just supposed to take just a, a sniff, just a little sniff. Well, we didn't even know how to. T- we just basically split it up and swallowed it. We just put it in water and swallowed it. We didn't. We didn't know anything about it. We just thought, okay, he sent us enough for basically a, a trip. Well. We we take that, we go to the track, the track's the first race, and we're going to bet a daily double of the, uh, we looked at the form, I guess, before we got completely uh, wasted, you know, on completely wasted. <laughs> before it started swimming away. on you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right, and yeah. we bet a daily double. Uh, there was a favorite named Sunday Puzzle in the first race, and he was 8-5, to five, and we're betting Sunday Puzzle, it was the... Uh, three, three, let me see if I can get this right. Yeah, she was the three, and we were betting it with another horse in the second. I, I forget, I got the numbers mixed up. Anyway, I had, it was like, it was like the eight, eight, three, and she was the eight. It was like the eight, three, something like that. Anyway, I did bet Sunday Puzzle in the first, but I bet the wrong horse in the second. I bet this five horse in the second. I'll never forget. And so... I, you know, because now I'm kind of, I come back and I, 
and we Sunday puzzle wins uh, eight to five. Okay, so now let's see what we got coming in the daily double. They list the prices up, you know. And I look at my ticket, and I didn't have the horse that we both wanted. I had this five horse, and I look up at the board, and the and I had a, it was a, I think yeah, it was a ten dollar daily double that we were splitting. And I look at the ticket, and the daily double is paying two hundred and fifty with with the eight to five shot in the first race. And I go, no, no, that's impossible. We had we had you know like the second or third choice in the second race. You know, wasn't wasn't a, you know, it might have been six to one or something. But anyway, this horse this horse is twenty five fifty to one. I don't know. I mean, I look down this five horses. Five horse is now this this is unbelievable. First is a first time starter, five year old. First-time starter, maiden, five-year-old, and it's in a maiden special weight race, but he's five years old. He's never started. There were no works shown. Now, they did have works at that point. They oh, did have works no at works. that point in the form, <laughs> but there were no works shown. They didn't even have to show them if you didn't want to, I guess, but they were shown if they were there. No works shown, ridden by a three-star bug boy. Never won a race, 10 pounds three stars this bug boy was and I forget the horse's name I should I remembered Sunday Puzzle but for some reason I don't remember this horse's name and I forget who the trainer was um, and we looked at each other and we're going well what what am I going to what can we do so we said well let's see if we can sell the ticket somebody may want to buy this ticket it's totally <laughs> worthless to us there's no way this horse could possibly win but maybe we can get 20 bucks for it or something right so we go in, and they all we could get for the ticket was ten dollars. What it was worth, nobody would even give us twenty. I mean, that's how ridiculous this horse was, right? So we said, "Well, we're not going to sell it for ten dollars." I mean, we're not, we're not, that, you know, we're not going to do that. So we we lay back down on the grass. So in those days, no no announcers, and you could of course be out on the rail and watch, or you could be there was a there was a bar where all the black people hung. And some of the hard boots, some of the guys, you know, it was a great bar. It was really was the far end of the grandstand, right? And if his far end of the grandstand, you remember it, yeah. And it was the and in those days, it really was a working class bar. And there were a lot of the black grooms would all they would never go to the clubhouse. They would always just hang there. And then there were some white hillbillies also, you know. I mean, and it was a great place. It really was. But it was open, if you remember, there was an open, you know, door there, open, just all open. And then there was grass behind it. And I don't know what it's like today. They may have built it up, you know, I, I don't know. It's a little bit more different. Now, but yeah. Yeah, but anyway, those, it was just a hill, a nice hill with grass. And you could lay on the hill and then look up and see the TV, right? Watch the TV from the, from the hill. And so we're laying there, and... And there's a hard boot guy, uh, older hard boot guy sitting next to us. And again, Kevin had blonde hair down to his, down to his weight, almost you know, down to his shoulders. I had this big afro, and this hard boot is with sucking on a straw. He's he's next to us. <laughs> anyway, we're watching the race, and I'm telling you, this horse just shot out of the gate, just like Susan's girl did. But he just shot out of the gate. And and never moved near the fence. Just this bug boy kept this horse like five wide all the way around the track, literally five wide in front of the field by like four, 
turned for home and just came roaring down the stretch to win as he pleased in the middle of the racetrack. No one ever got near this horse. And now we're looking at a thousand, you know, over a thousand bucks, right? I mean, it was two fifty times five, right? We had a ten dollar ticket. And we start laughing. Now that now the MDA has kicked in and I mean we would laugh anyway because it's so insane, but because of the drug we are laughing so hard and literally rolling around the grass and just <laughs> laughing and laughing and laughing. I mean, just behind, like hyenas, like like just, I mean, people around us had to be kind of irritated. I mean, what are these two guys doing? They're laughing so hard. And the hillbilly finally looked at him and go, can I have some of what you guys are taking? <laughs> like, that. like all big winners properly should, Morty and his friend set up the bar. Well... Uh, oh my God, we were now blitz. Anyway, we go in, we cash the ticket, we buy everybody, including us. Well, come on with us, we're buying you whatever you want. And we set up the whole bar, all the black guys, all the everybody at the bar. We just, you know, set the bar up. Had such a great time. Anyway, well, we were up, and this is the worst part of the story. We were up for the next twenty-four to thirty hours. We because and we were, yeah, and, yeah. and again, we had both had experience Man. taking LSD, and you you know you would trip for a few hours and then you'd come down. I mean, you know, it was it was never that. This never stopped. You, we were literally, and it, it was fortunate that we both had the type of personalities that we did that we didn't get paranoid. You know what I mean? We both mm, handled yeah, it. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, because you can get paranoid. As you know, you can get really paranoid. But we were fine. And all we did all night was walk the track, and we went out over to the Ward Farm across the way and walked through the pastures. Because we didn't, I mean, we were just wide awake, but we just had to walk it off. We just figured, okay, let's just keep walking, and we'll, it'll eventually go away. And finally, but it literally was about... 24 hours before we find but and i guess out of the time we probably hallucinated for a good 10 of it anyway and then after that it was just we were like on speed you know it was it was yeah. truly yeah. one of the worst yeah why it was truly one of the worst experiences other than that part of it <laughs> it wasn't like <laughs> enjoyable it's all 50 yeah yeah but morty's adventures have only begun trust me tune in next week for the conclusion of this rollicking fun interview with morty mittenthal here in the telegraph for a beer I'll bite I hear his foot's all right a boss at all the horse and red last night I know it's all